A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka, translated by Willa and Edwin Muir, adapted for the podcast project of Fermat's Last Theater. In recent years, people have lost interest in the art of professional fasting. It used to pay very well to stage great feats of fasting, but we live in a different world now. At one time, the whole town took a lively interest in the hunger artist. From day to day of his fast, the excitement mounted. Everybody wanted to see him at least once a day. Some people bought season tickets for the last few days and sat from morning till night in front of his small barred cage. Even at night there were visiting hours, when the whole effect was heightened by torches. On fine days the cage was set out in the open air, and then it was the children's special treat to see the hunger artist. They stood open-mouthed, holding each other's hands for reassurance, marveling as he sat there pallid in black tights. Not even on a seat, but down among straw on the ground, his ribs sticking out. Sometimes he gave a courteous nod, answering questions with a constrained smile, or perhaps stretching an arm through the bars, so that one might feel how thin it was, and then again withdrawing deep into himself, paying no attention to anyone or anything, not even to the all-important striking of the clock that was the only piece of furniture in his cage, but merely staring into vacancy with half-shut eyes now and then taking a sip from a tiny glass of water. Besides casual onlookers, there were also relays of permanent watchers selected by the public, usually butchers for some reason. Their task was to watch the hunger artist day and night, three of them at a time, in case he should have some secret recourse to nourishment. This was nothing but a formality to reassure the masses, for initiates knew well that during his fast he would never in any circumstances, not even under forcible compulsion, swallow the smallest morsel of food. The honor of his profession forbade it. Not every watcher understood this. Some groups of night watchers were very lax in their duties. They huddled together to play cards intently, obviously meaning to give the hunger artist the chance of a little refreshment, which they supposed he would draw from some private hoard. These watchers made the artist miserable, made his fast seem unendurable, Sometimes he mastered his feebleness enough to sing for a little while during their watch, to show how unjust their suspicions were. But that accomplished nothing. They only wondered at his cleverness in being able to eat while singing. Much more to his taste were the watchers who sat close up to the bars, not content with the light of the torches, but focusing on him the glare of a flashlight. The harsh light did not trouble him at all. He could never sleep soundly anyway and he could always doze off a little in any light at any hour, even when the hall was thronged with noisy onlookers. He loved spending a sleepless night with such watchers. He exchanged jokes with them, told them stories out of his nomadic life, anything to keep them awake and show them that he had no eatables in his cage and that he was fasting as not one of them could fast. But his happiest moment was when, at first light, an enormous breakfast was brought for them at his expense, on which they flung themselves with the keen appetite of healthy men after a night awake. Of course, some people argued that this breakfast was a way of bribing the watchers. But when these people were invited to take on a night's vigil without a breakfast, merely for the sake of the cause, they made themselves scarce, although they stuck stubbornly to their suspicions. Such suspicions, of course, were perfectly natural. No one could watch the hunger artist continuously, day and night, and so no one could produce first-hand evidence that he never broke his fast. Because only the artist himself could know that, he was bound to be the only completely satisfied spectator of his own fast. 
Yet he wasn't ever satisfied, for he alone knew what no other initiate knew, that fasting was the easiest thing in the world. He made no secret of this, yet people did not believe him. At best, they set him down as modest, but most of them thought he was out for publicity, or else was some kind of cheat who had discovered some way of making it easy to fast and then had the impudence to more or less admit the fact. No matter how long he fasted, never once did he leave the cage of his own free will. The longest fast was fixed by his impresario at forty days. Beyond that term he was not allowed to go, not even in great cities. People's interest could be stimulated by a steadily increasing pressure of advertisement for about forty days, and after that they began to stop caring. Of course, different towns and countries varied a little, but as a rule forty days marked the limit. On that day, the flower-bedecked cage was opened, enthusiastic spectators filled the hall, a military band played, two doctors entered the cage to measure the results of the fast, which were announced through a megaphone, and finally two young ladies appeared, blissful at being selected for the honor, to help the hunger artist down the few steps leading to a small table, on which was spread a carefully chosen invalid meal. Here the artist always turned stubborn. Though he entrusted his bony arms to the helping hands of the ladies bending over him, he would not stand up. Why stop fasting at this moment, when he was not yet quite in his best fasting form? Why be cheated of the fame he would get for being not only the record hunger artist of all time, which presumably he was already, but for beating his own record by a performance beyond human imagination? If his public admired him so much, why should it have so little patience with him? If he could endure fasting longer, why shouldn't the public? Besides, he was comfortable sitting in the straw, and now he was supposed to stand up and go down to a meal, the very thought of which gave him a nausea that only the presence of the ladies kept him from betraying. As he looked up into the eyes of the ladies, who were apparently so friendly and in reality so cruel, he shook his head, which felt too heavy on its fragile neck. But then the impresario came forward without a word for the band made speech impossible, and lifted his arms in the air as if inviting heaven to look down upon this suffering martyr, which indeed the artist was, though in quite another sense. The impresario grabbed him around the emaciated waist with exaggerated caution to show off his frail condition, and committed him to the care of the blenching ladies while secretly shaking him so that his legs and body tottered and swayed. The artist now submitted completely. His head lolled on his breast as if it had landed there by chance. His body was hollowed out. His legs, in a spasm of self-preservation, clung to each other at the knees, yet scraped at the ground as if they were only trying to find a solid place to stand. And the whole weight of his body, a featherweight after all, relapsed onto one of the ladies, who looked around for help. This post of honor was not at all what she had expected. First, she stretched her neck as far as she could to keep her face at least free from contact with him. Then, finding this impossible, and her more fortunate companion not coming to her aid, but merely holding extended in her own trembling hand the artist's little bunch of knuckle-bones, the lady, to the great delight of the spectators, burst into tears and had to be replaced by an attendant who was stationed in readiness. Then came the food, a little of which the impresario managed to get between the artist's lips while he sat in a kind of half-fainting trance to the accompaniment of cheerful patter. 
After that, a toast was drunk to the public, supposedly prompted by a whisper from the artist in the impresario's ear. The band confirmed it with a mighty flourish. The spectators melted away, and no one had any cause to be dissatisfied with the proceedings. No one except the hunger artist himself, as always. So he lived for many years, with small regular intervals of recuperation, invisible glory, honored by the world yet troubled in spirit, and all the more troubled because no one would take his trouble seriously. What comfort could he possibly need? What more could he possibly wish for? And if some good-natured person, feeling sorry for him, tried to console him by pointing out that his melancholy was probably caused by fasting, sometimes he reacted with an outburst of fury, and to everyone's alarm began to shake the bars of his cage like a wild animal. The impresario had a way of punishing these outbreaks, which he rather enjoyed. He would apologize publicly for the artist's behavior, which was only to be excused because of the irritability caused by fasting condition hardly to be understood by well-fed people. Then, by a natural transition, he went on to mention the artist's equally incomprehensible boast that he could fast for much longer than he was doing. He praised the high ambition, the goodwill, the great self-denial undoubtedly implicit in such a statement, and then quite simply countered it by bringing out photographs, which were also on sale to the public, showing the artist on the fortieth day of a fast, lying in bed almost dead from exhaustion. This perversion of the truth always proved too much for the artist. A consequence of the premature ending of his fast was here presented as the cause of it. To fight against this whole world of non-understanding was impossible. Time and again, in good faith, he stood by the bars listening to the impresario, but as soon as the photographs appeared he let go, and sank with a groan back onto his straw. Then the public, reassured, could once more come close and gaze at him. Nowadays, when people who took part in those scenes call them to mind, they can't understand themselves, for the aforementioned change in public interest has set in almost overnight. One fine day the pampered hunger artist found himself deserted by the amusement seekers who went streaming past him to other attractions. For the last time, the impresario hurried him over half of Europe to discover whether the old interest might still survive here and there. All in vain. Everywhere, as if by secret agreement, a positive revulsion from professional fasting was in evidence. Of course, it could not really have sprung up so suddenly as all that, and many symptoms that were ignored during the rush and glitter of success now came to mind, but too late to take any countermeasures. Fasting would surely come into fashion again at some future date, but that was no comfort to the hunger artist and the impresario. What could the artist do? Having been applauded by thousands in his time, he could hardly come down to being displayed in a street booth at village fairs. He was too old to adopt another profession, and too fanatically devoted to fasting. So he took leave of the impresario, his partner in an unparalleled career, and hired himself to a big circus. In order to spare his own feelings, he avoided reading the conditions of his contract. A big circus, with its enormous traffic in men, animals, and apparatus, can always find a use for people at any time, even for a hunger artist, provided, of course, that he doesn't ask too much. And in this case, not only the artist was taken on, but his world-famous name as well. Indeed, considering the peculiar nature of his performance, which was not impaired by advancing age, 
No one could claim that here was an artist past his prime seeking refuge in some remote corner of the world. No, the hunger artist averred that he could fast as well as ever, and that if he were allowed to fast as he liked, he would establish a record that would astound the world. This claim provoked a smile among the other professionals, since it ignored the fact that nobody cared any more how long he fasted. But he had not actually lost his sense of the real situation. He accepted as a matter of course that his cage would be stationed not in the middle of the ring, but outside, near the animal cages. Large and gaily painted placards made a frame for the cage and announced what was to be seen inside it. When the public came thronging out in the intervals to see the animals, they could hardly avoid passing the hunger artist's cage and stopping there for a moment. Perhaps they might even have stayed longer had not those pressing behind them in the narrow gangway, anxious to get to the excitements of the menagerie, made it impossible for anyone to stand gazing at the artist for any length of time. And that is why the hunger artist, who at first looked forward to these visiting hours, came to dread them. At first he was exhilarated to see the crowds come streaming his way, but only too soon it became clear not the most obstinate and almost conscious self-deception could hold out against the fact that these people couldn't wait to get to the menagerie. And the first sight of them from a distance remained the best, for when they reached his cage he was at once deafened by the storm of shouting and abuse that arose from the two contending factions, those who wanted to go straight on to the animals, and those who wanted to stop and stare at him, not out of real interest, but only out of obstinate self-assertiveness. When the first great rush was passed, along came the stragglers, and these, who weren't being shoved from behind, and could have stopped to look at him as long as they liked, hardly glanced his way in their haste to get to the menagerie. Once in a great while some father fetched up before him with his children and explained to them at length what the phenomenon meant, telling stories of earlier years when he himself had watched similar but much more thrilling performances. The children, still rather uncomprehending since they hadn't been sufficiently prepared for this lesson, what do they care about fasting? yet suggested by the brightness of their intent eyes that new and better times might be coming. The hunger artist often wondered if things would be better if his cage were not quite so near the menagerie, which made it too easy for people to ignore him. And then, of course, the stench of the menagerie, the carrying past of raw lumps of flesh for the beasts of prey, the animals' restlessness at feeding times and at night depressed him continually, but he did not dare to lodge a complaint with the management. After all, he had the animals to thank for the troops of people who passed his cage, among whom there might always be one here and there to take an interest in him, and who could tell where they might seclude him if they called attention to his existence and to the fact that he was only an impediment on the way to the menagerie. A small impediment, to be sure, and one that grew steadily smaller. People no longer even found it strange that they were expected in times like these to take an interest in a hunger artist. They simply didn't think about him at all. Just try to explain to anyone the art of fasting. Anyone who has no feeling for it cannot be made to understand it. The fine placards grew dirty and illegible. The little notice board, showing the number of fast days, which at first was changed carefully every day, had long stayed at the same figure, for after the first few weeks even this tiny task seemed pointless, so the artist simply fasted on and on, as he had once dreamed of doing, and, as he had foretold, no length of fasting was any trouble at all to him. But no one counted the days any more, 
No one, not even the artist himself, knew what records he was achieving. And when, once in a while, some leisurely passerby stopped, sneered at the old number on the noseboard, and claimed it was all a swindle, that was in its way the stupidest lie ever invented by indifference and inborn malice. The hunger artist wasn't cheating. He was working honestly, but the world was cheating him of his reward. But after more time passed, no one even bothered to stop and sneer. One day an overseer came by and asked the attendants why this perfectly good cage should be left standing unused with dirty straw inside it. Nobody knew until one man, reminded by the old notice board, remembered about the hunger artist. They poked into the straw with sticks and found him in it. "'Are you still fasting?' asked the overseer. "'When on earth do you mean to stop?' "'Forgive me, everybody.' whispered the hunger artist. Only the overseer, who had his ear to the bars, understood him. "'Of course we forgive you,' said the overseer, and tapped his forehead with a finger to let the attendants know what state the man was in. "'I always wanted you to admire my fasting.' "'We do admire it.' "'But you shouldn't admire it.' "'Well, then, we don't admire it. But why shouldn't we admire it?' Because I have to fast. I can't help it. What a fellow you are. And why can't you help it? The hunger artist lifted his head a little and spoke, with his lips pursed as if for a kiss right into the overseer's ear so that no syllable might be lost. Because I never found any food I liked. If I had found any, believe me, I would have made no fuss. I would have stuffed myself to bursting just like everyone else. Those were his last words, but in his dimming eyes remained the firm, though no longer proud, persuasion that he was still fasting. Well, clear this out now, said the overseer, and they buried the hunger artist, straw and all. Into the cage they put a young panther. Even the dullest onlooker felt refreshed to see this wild creature leaping around the cage that had so long been dreary. The panther was all right. The attendants loved bringing him his food. He seemed not even to miss his freedom. His noble body, furnished almost to the bursting point with all that it needed, seemed to carry freedom too. Freedom seemed to lurk in his jaws. And the joy of life streamed with such ardent passion from his throat that onlookers could barely stand the thrill of it. But they braced themselves, crowded around the cage, and did not ever want to move away. A Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka The Hunger Artist himself was played by Nick Berevic Hancock, who is also our sound engineer. And I'm Alex Hancock for Vermont's Last Theatre.